We are in the middle of our three-week series that we've entitled Ready, Aim, Fire. So kind of a, um, a really you know, super creative way to revisit our, our Live Sent vision. You'll notice I don't have a bow and arrow um, up here on stage. Yeah, yeah, we took all the risk you know, possible. Just our insurance actually contact, contacted us after last week and just said you can't do that anymore. But uh, the, the visual here is, is that, um, that as we seek to live sent, right? Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But as we seek to live sent and obedient to Christ, uh, that, that there's kind of three essential elements, and literally this might apply to just about everything in our lives, but that the visual is, I think, pretty compelling to us, that we, uh, that we be ready, we be prepared to do whatever that is, and that we aim, that we like make the, the target, whatever a win, whatever success looks like, make that very clear, that we'd aim at the right things, and that we would fire, that we would have the boldness, or in the spiritual life, maybe the faith, to let it fly, to obey, to actually go and do the thing, right? And so, the, the concept is that the second layer to that illustration is that you have to do all three. You can't just aim and fire. The arrow drops, as we saw. You can't, in this case today, as we look at aim, you can't just ready and fire. That's very, very dangerous. And so uh, as we look at Scripture this morning, the question is, what does living sin, in fact, look like? Uh, what, are, what exactly are we aiming at? If we were to, to be living sin, how would we know that? So as we put, you know, uh, uh, bracelets on our wrists, for those of you who, you know, were here several years ago, or maybe you found one in a drawer, you know, from several years ago, and you have a, a Willow Bend Church Live Scent bracelet, you're going, okay, how do I know I'm actually living scent? So to today, I think, is a very important uh, time for us, if we're going to keep printing this on things and talking about it, for us to, as, as a group, as a church, and even for those uh, who we represent who are listening online, that, that this would be something that where we could constantly come back to and just uh, very, very clearly understand what it means in Scripture to, to live since. So, uh, so no small task this morning. And as I studied this and uh, begin to present this to, to you and to me and to explain some things and connect some dots in Scripture, I'm reminded how massive of a charge this is, that three years ago the Lord did not give a... Uh, a very soft vision to you know to to the church in general, but in terms of us making this kind of our vision emphasis, this was no soft thing. Uh, this this in fact will change um, how we live, and and maybe to some degree, or for some of us in the room, it, it'll change everything about how we we live. Um, so just real quick, I want to start with John twenty twenty one, just so we kind of have that as a reference, and then we're actually going to be camped out more in the, the Great Commission passage, which is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So we're going to camp out there in Matthew 28, but just real quick, let's read John 20, verse 21 together, because um, we know this is where the, the, the more specifically where the, the term live sin comes from, and it's, it's Jesus uh, telling this after uh, he is raised from the dead, and he's making these appearances to his disciples, one-on-one, kind of in a group setting, and as we'll look at in Matthew 28, even to a large crowd. And this is the same kind of message he has for the most part. And it says, As the Father has sent me, even so, say this with me, I am sending you. So we live in a way where we are sent. We live with a mindset of having been sent. And so the question almost today is, where? To do what? And again, uh, thankfully, and this is the case for all of the spiritual life, praise God, this is very clearly laid out in Scripture for us, um, so that, that we know exactly as we leave these doors today, um, 
maybe just kind of uh, reaffirming uh, together what living scent looks like. Uh, the answer to, to what does living scent look like or where exactly are we aiming, the answer to that question is nothing short of the answer to life's biggest question. And here, here's what I mean. Um, as, as a person in the world, whether uh, probably before we were Christians and giving the purpose that, that we find as believers, certainly this applies more so to, to those of us uh, before we met Jesus and to the world outside of a relationship and a purpose that we find in Christ. But what, what's the common life question? Why am I here? Right? That takes many forms, like what's the purpose of life or is there a God? Ultimately, the root of that question is I want to know what I'm doing on this spinning planet of dirt and water among other sphere, uh, spheres in the, this universe, right? What, what is the purpose? Why am I here? And so as believers, we can confidently say that, that in a very general sense, our purpose is to know God and then to respond appropriately to God with worship. And that's a very broad answer. And so here's the next question for us. Having done that then... The question isn't, why am I here as a Christian? The question now is, why am I still here? I've done it. Like, I've met you. I know you. I'm, like, doing my best. I'm never going to be saved enough to be glorified. So just take me now. Like, I'm not going to contribute much to this whole thing, though I'm going to try to be obedient. And you tell me by your power, I'm actually going to, you know, grow quite a bit to look more and more like Jesus. But let's be honest. Let's face it, Lord, that, that I'm never going to be far enough along for you to actually choose to glorify me and prepare me for eternity. So the question isn't, why am I here? I know that one. The question is, why am I still here? And so if you, if you notice the tension in my voice, is because, man, this world's tough, and I know eternity's better. It's like, ah, just take me home. Why am I still here? As we sang that song, I think about this, and, and the answer to this is why we have air in our lungs. The answer to this is why we have blood in our veins. The answer to this question is why the Lord has sustained us to this point right now. Why am I still here? And this answer is what we see in Scripture. Before we get to the answer, here's some hints of what it is not. Why you're still here as a believer is not to make the world a better place. Why you're still here as a Christian uh, is not to feed the, the poor. Why you're still here as a Christian uh, is, is not to, to have uh, kids that, that grow up to, to, to be uh, confident, um, successful contributors to society or to grow your business. Why, why I'm still here is not to walk my adopted daughter down the aisle in 58 years. Hidden inside of that one illustration, by the way, is a very big announcement. Those of you who are following uh, our lives for the past couple of years, we've been in the adoption process. We have uh, recently been chosen by a birth mother. And uh, so we begin the, the messy, praise God. We begin, yeah, you know kind of what it's like, but we begin the messy, hard process um, of adoption, just to fill in enough blanks so we can kind of move on because it might be distracting. Uh, this, this daughter of, of mine, as weird as that might be to say, because adoption is so just beautifully messy, uh, she's not due until January sometime. So we have about six months to really trust God and we'll keep you informed. But my point is this, as much purpose as adopting now a daughter might add to my life, it is not why I'm still here. 
Matter of fact, we're here for much bigger, better reasons. Uh, we're going to read a verse in Acts 1, cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that tells us that, that in his graciousness, Jesus not only was raised from the dead, but he came back and spent 40 days talking to those who would be apostles, who would account for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and, and, and take down and pass on Jesus' answer to this question. And Acts 1.3 says, He, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, Luke writes in Acts, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes some of these appearances. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, and he shares the gospel, that Christ was Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Again, that's a euphemism for Christians who die the physical death, never to die the eternal death, to be in eternity with Jesus. Verse 7, he continues last verse, then he appeared to James Paul writes, and then to the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Each gospel's account of the uh, post-resurrection visitation or appearances are really, really significant. Mark's ends his, Mark ends his gospel very, very early. The best or the earliest manuscripts um, depending on what version of the Bible you have. More recently, we know that the earliest, the best manuscripts ends uh, right after the women are freaking out. It says they're astonished at what they've seen, that Jesus' tomb is empty. And so it's a very urgent kind of ending. Uh, John ends his gospel with a very intimate ending. It's Peter's commissioning. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, you love me. Yes, very significant exchange there. And he sends Peter to go feed his sheep. That's, again, after Christ had risen. Very intimate ending. Luke has a very powerful ending when it, when it, as it relates to Jesus' appearing after his death. And it ends with his ascension back into heaven. That's the very latest. That's, Luke has the, the latest account because he literally has Jesus going back to heaven. Now, as we open Matthew 28, his ending isn't too far after Mark's ending. It's still pretty recent. And this is, as, as Paul refers to, the 500 plus brothers at one time. That it's, it's, uh, most scholars and theologians believe that, that this is the same account. So when Paul says, and he appeared to this guy, and this guy, and this guy, then this guy, and he also appeared to over 500 people at one time, And then whenever we read in Matthew 28, there's some clues here that that help us understand that this great commission that we're about to read was to the remnant of Jewish believers that were were still believing after everything went down. And the the pilgrims that had come to to the the Passover, other surrounding Gentiles coming because they actually had a faith in this Jesus that we're about to read some doubted. And they come to this hillside in Galilee, and Jesus gives them the earliest but most expansive public address of the Great Commission. Things that he would say in private and more intimate settings, like in John, when he says, As the Father has sent me, I send you. Here in Matthew 28, we get the Great Commission to a very public, a very widespread audience. And this is then for us and for every Christian between now and when this took place. So if you have your Bible, Matthew 28 says this, 
verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped. But some, and we're going to say others in the crowd, and I'll explain that in a minute. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. And that is why you're still here. This is why I'm still here. Um, To live sent by spreading the message of the gospel across the globe and making disciples from those who believe. Church historian Kenneth Scott, not going to pronounce his last name, says this. The primary emphasis of the, because I can't pronounce it, not because you would know them and be offended, but you literally have no idea who this guy is, but he's right, whatever he says, listen. The primary emphasis of the church was, and the implication is and still is, the primary emphasis of the church was upon the salvation of the individual for eternal life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he quotes, uh, the great 19th century British preacher believed that the work of conversion is the first and great thing we must drive at. After this, we must labor with all our might. He goes on to quote John Wesley, reminding preachers, you have nothing to do but save souls. C.S. Lewis uh, hones in on the target and makes it very clear as well. He says, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If you are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible himself, he boldly says, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. And then we see Paul. And before we read this, let's remember how Paul was the poster child for suffering. Uh, If you read the book of Acts, you're going to see his floggings and his imprisonments and his shipwrecks. So whether by natural causes or very just direct persecution, the man knew how to struggle and and suffer well, all to the glory of God, right? Well, here's why. 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those who would believe, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's why I suffer the way I suffer. And did you know that by doing this, the Great Commission, and and evangelizing and preaching the gospel, then baptizing those who believe, training them to be disciples, did you know by by doing this we are literally finishing the work that Jesus started? That there is literally a baton pass from Jesus on that uh, mountain in Galilee to the apostles, then to early church fathers, and down the line to us. Read this in Acts 1. It says, and this is Luke, uh, who wrote the, the gospel account of Luke. So this is his second book. Listen to what he says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to his apostles whom he had chosen. So he's saying Jesus started something. Uh, and then Matthew twenty four fourteen kind of emphasizes again how we are continuing it till it's completion, its culmination. Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
That doesn't mean every single person on the planet, as as far as we understand, this doesn't mean every single person will hear the gospel message, though I I hope that's what it means, because I hope that happens. But this at least means, as we see clearly throughout Scripture, that every nation, every tongue, every peoples, every people group will receive somehow the gospel shared. See, Christ is ordained by ordinary means, that his church would finish the work that Jesus began by spreading the gospel to the ends of the world. Was this on your mind when you woke up this morning? Were you thinking about this when you woke up this morning? And if this is the case, it would seem as if he's waiting for some of us to speed things up a little bit and maybe for others of us to get started, though we trust in his sovereign timing. So what does living sin look like then? If that's in fact what we're called to, what we're commanded to, the one reason we're all still here as believers, having figured out the reason we're here in the first place, if that's why we're here, then what does it look like? So we're going to go through the Great Commission, and we're going to find very conveniently, very very neatly, very comfortably, our live sent, the acronym of S-E-N-T. We're going to find this comfortably tucked within the Great Commission. So if you have your Bible, maybe your turn, or uh, you have a copy of the Bible, God's Word to us, turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll look at first verse 16. This is where we see serve. And I'll admit, this is implied, this is implicit, the others are very explicit. However, go with me here, and we're not stretching a meaning, we're, we're, or if anything, stretching an impression that they got, but this seems really clear to me that this, uh, Im- or this, this scene of on the hillside or the mountainside provoking all the scenes of radical compassion and love that Jesus had demonstrated for several years. That this scene where they were at would at least kind of hearken to the feeding of the 5,000, the great compassion he would have on all of the crowds. That this would be a similar kind of setting where, where he healed people and, and literally said they're a long way from the market and they've come all the way out here, admittedly some just to be fed and some to see miracles, yet still he patiently waited upon them, served them, uh, healed many of their sick, feeding all who were hungry by, again, a dramatic miracle stemming from a, a deep compassion that he had for them. Uh, we studied Mark all of last year for like 12 years or something like that, but we, we studied the book of Mark. And uh, do you remember in chapter 6 when he went back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he, he was literally, uh, he was kicked out, he was threatened in his hometown? Had he not been God, just imagine how emotionally wrecked that, that, would, that would make some of us. And then that same day, just emotionally drained as much as he could have been anyways, he continues, and these crowds flock toward him, and we're told he had great compassion on them. And he fed them then, as he did multiple times, and he healed the crowd. Also along a mountainside, or on the side of a, of a hill at least, in Matthew 5, uh, actually on a mountain, he gives the, the, the greatest sermon ever, uh, certainly touching on the gospel and the life change of a believer, but almost emphasizing the Christian ethic, how we are to love one another. And this is a much deeper kind of love than anything they've ever heard before. It's, a, it's qualitatively uh, better than any philosopher, surely, what was ever uh, propagating or teaching, that this was a brand new revolutionary idea, things like love your neighbor, pray for those who persecute you, turn your other cheek, go the extra mile. These are, these are radical ideas of love and of service. 
In our life groups, we implement this whole S idea, the serve idea, through what we call internal care and serving our community. So basically, we act like Christians. We love because we can't help it. And so we aim that at the people in our group. And then we aim that outside of our group at our community or around our church as needed. So th- these, are the, the, these are the loving behaviors that surely along the hillside in Galilee with uh, a small crowd compared to who had previously gathered, certainly that would have provoked these scenes of radical service and love and miracle working because of great compassion for these people. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that the first church was doing this really well. We, we know that in Acts 4.34, for there was not a, needy, uh, not a needy person among them. How amazing is that? What I have is yours. You have a lack, I have surplus. Let's trade. Do you know that's how the church is still supposed to act? You know that's how Christians can't help but act if moved by God and given the opportunity. This is a, a radical model of love. This is the model of Christ. Whenever we serve, we're, we're demonstrating the model of Christ's love. We demonstrate care, kindness, compassion, generosity. The list goes on and on and on. But this is barely the beginning. You've heard preach the gospel and if necessary use words, but that's a, that's a dangerous misrepresentation of what it means to live since. Why? Well, because my love won't lead to anyone's eternal life or salvation, but I, I'll tell you what will. The story of God's love for that person does. And so for many of us, we've maybe committed to live and the commitment here to Scripture, as we're going to see, is an obedience, a commitment to live sent. Because what happens whenever we serve is we set ourselves up for opportunities to engage. Living sent requires us to communicate the gospel with words. We're reminded in Romans 10, maybe you've read this before, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So he sends us. This is what it means to engage. And this is, if you're following the, the program on the back here, we see engage in verse 19. And this essentially is the message of Christ. To serve and to act in love, the great Christian ethic doesn't get to the root of why we're even behaving that way, but the fruit of it sure does make an impact in our world. That's the model of Christ's love, but we do that in hopes of, also because we can't help not to, but we do that in hopes of sharing the message of Christ. In Matthew's account, the, the term baptism, uh, we, can, we can assume that, that he's assuming uh, that the good news has been preached and people have believed, but Luke doesn't assume that. Read in Luke chapter 24, he says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Because you can't have baptism where there's no repentance. So this is the message of Christ. And the message hasn't changed. If we back up all the way to Mark chapter 1, we're talking about John the Baptist here before Christ even gets on the scene. What's the message of Christ? It's the same thing. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. A pretty common 
uh, Greek parsing lesson is the, the word ekklesia. It's far to ask most of you, maybe you've heard, maybe you're familiar, ekklesia means church or assembly or gathering. Um, in case you didn't know, the, it, it's kind of it's two words, like a compound word. There's a preposition, ek, that means out of, or, or actually it implies not just out of, but like towards something else, which is good news for us. So ek is out of, and kaleo means to call or invite or beckon, right? And so literally, when we're the church, we're, we're the called out ones. We're called out from darkness into his marvelous light, as First Peter 2 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, that you may paint a fence, that you may fix a car, that you may buy groceries for, yes, but no, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, passers through, and exiles here to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those whom you are evangelizing. Keep it honorable so that whenever they speak against you as an evildoer, which hopefully is a false claim, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when Jesus comes again. Matthew 5, 13 and 16, familiar passage where Jesus says we are salt and we are light. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Did you know that as a Christian, I have an agenda when I love people? And maybe that sounds presumptuous. Maybe that sounds like I don't trust God And many of you would agree and hopefully do agree. And here's what I mean by that is I have an agenda whenever I love anyone. It doesn't mean that's where it comes from, but it means that that the the hope that I have of, of helping someone is not that they get helped or this need gets met, but on the tip of my tongue is the gospel that will save their soul if given an opportunity to speak and if impressed by the Lord to speak anyways regardless of an opportunity, convenient or not, like we read last week, ready, in season, out of season, when it's easy, when it's not, when it's favorable, when it's not. On the tip of my tongue is not $5 that will buy a meal. On the tip of my tongue is the gospel that will literally save their soul. The light of these good deeds is to result from or result in sharing the message of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Again, like our worship leader said, it's nice to be able to preach the gospel after the gospel's already been preached during song and worship, by the way. We we, we talk about the gospel a lot. It's because it's literally what saves us and what continues to save us and to make us more like Christ. And to be reminded that we've been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. I got distracted. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their transgresses, transpasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us, church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, listen to this, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God? Do we have an agenda where we're ready to implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God today? That's the E for engage, that we engage in relationship, yes, but to engage with the gospel. You say, man, I, I, I didn't come up in my personal mission statement class with Kevin and Denise McCoy, like, went to that room and we we're talking about how God had maybe gifted me, even wired me with certain experiences and, and interests and skills, like, how can I, how do you think, you know, uh, you know, spiritual leader and, and elder of our, our church, and this is all good stuff, right? How, how do you think I could serve both in and outside the walls? And, and man, during that conversation, uh, man, the, the, the idea of evangelism, being a missionary, never came up. And, and maybe I've taken a spiritual gifting test, and, and, and I was, it didn't label, label me as an evangelist. And that's because evangelism isn't a spiritual gift. It's a command. I'm not comfortable. We'll join the club. It's awkward sometimes. Get on board. Like, it costs me things sometimes. Well, do I dare point you to the cross? Is this something we are intentional with? To search for your sweet spot in serving is, is a great thing. But to, to, to not do it because you don't feel like it's in your wheelhouse, personality-wise... For, for none of us is that an excuse. Commenting on this reality of the Christian life, Charles Spurgeon, he's a good friend of mine. He says this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. See, missions is not a department or a ministry area, though it is. It's not uh, relegated to a ministry area of a church. Missional isn't some reformation or movement within the church that is all of a sudden cool and now a trend. As I said, it's not a spiritual gift that you can conveniently not have. Living sin is not a new concept, and it's certainly not unique to Willow Bend's church. Jesus said very clearly, I, I have come to seek and to save the lost, and likewise for Christians to live sin is for them to live at all. They are to come to us. We are not to expect them to go. To come. We are to go to them. We are not to expect them to come to us. And you would say, well, that's risky. And I would say, when has it not been risky? It's more risky to go out than and, uh, into the world proclaiming the bold message of sin and repentance and that Christ alone saves in a world full of tolerance. Speaking of risk... Did you know where the word martyr comes from? Joseph is laughing on the inside right now because he knows the answer, and some of you do too. There's a, there's a, there's a cognate uh, which phonetically kind of grew in meaning uh, from the Greek of the word martyreo. So you might assume that martyreo in the Greek means to die for your faith. It actually means to give a witness. It means to testify. And Christian history helped change the understanding of that word because so many who testified and gave a witness for Christ ended up dying for it. Therefore, the word for witness became one who died because of their witness. Therefore, we get the English word martyr. This has always been risky. For Jesus to send them into Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world, do you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, in, Jer in Jerusalem and Judea, I might lose my life. 
Because this is very unpopular, Jesus. Do you not remember like five days ago? Do you not remember the past several weeks? You're the one that did this to us. And you're sending us right back into the snake pit. In Jerusalem and Judea, they, they know that they're risking their lives. In Samaria, Samaria, uh, Samaria thank you, they, they believe that they're losing as much as they can tell their religion because they're unclean there. They eat bacon there. Like you've told us it's okay now to eat bacon. My, my favorite Bible verse in the world where, where you know, Jesus said in a vision, like you can eat bacon now. It's literally in the Bible. Go find it. It's not said with those exact words, but, but, but God, they, Jesus, they eat bacon there. I have to become unclean. I have to lose the purity you know, that, that you purchased for me to, for me to have as a, as a Christian. I would lose my religion there and to the ends of the world. I have no concept for that. They wouldn't just need a boat. They would need planes. They would need maybe the internet. Going has always been hard uncomfortable and dangerous. Today's exclusive message of Jesus Christ is still very divisive and offensive, but Romans 1.16 is still true. Does anybody know Romans 1.16? Does anybody know Romans 1.16 by heart? Can you say it very loud? We usually don't do this, but say it very loud for us. Yes, ready, go. Lisa. For it is the Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Thank you and thank you. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So whenever you don't feel like going and feel like engaging, not just in relationship, bless God for that, that has to happen sometimes, but also engaging in the gospel. When you don't feel like it, let's remember that Jesus said, therefore go. Why? Because all authority from the Father has been given to me. I am very powerful, so go. It's literally what he's saying. Do we not remember that Jesus has authority over diseases, over nature, over demons, death, over sin, the, 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 the ability, the authority to forgive sin? He has the authority from the Father to judge the world, which, interestingly enough, he then gives to some of us, which is kind of cool. That happens later. He has authority over Satan, regardless of how meek he might have been when he was on this earth. In Revelation 11, we know that he has authority over all kings. And here he's saying, I have authority over you. So go, because I said so. As we grow in maturity, I think we can understand the why. But aren't there times, parents, where the kids just don't understand? And so they're either not going to do the thing, or you're going to have to just wait about 10 years until they grow up a little bit, because they, they're not going to understand the concepts involved. So sometimes what you have to say is, do this. Well, why? And you think, yeah, they're not going to get that. Because I said so. And by the way, I love you, but, but go do it because I... I said so. When we don't understand why, and, and most of the time in regards to this, the how, we go. Because he, he said so. He has authority over us. We, we are to submit to every command from the lips of Jesus and recorded in Scripture. Have you engaged someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ recently? Are you willing to share or defend your faith with a neighbor, a family member, or a stranger 
Are you able to share and defend your faith? Do you actually believe that the story of God's love in Jesus is God's power to save? Because if we preach faithfully, people will believe. And having believed, we, we must uh, immerse them in water. It's called to baptize them. This is, this is a very clear statement. It's, it's interesting to me why, why Jesus was so prescriptive about how we are to, to treat a, a new convert or a convert when, when we realize in Scripture that it's not the baptism that does the saving work. Though spiritually, the Lord might use that in significant ways to, to mark our, our confession in our life and even for those present. But we know that the baptism doesn't save us, we, we know clearly, this is a theme throughout Scripture, read Romans, here's one in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your own doing, it is the gift of God, not resulting in works, so that no one may boast. And then if you read the book of Galatians, Paul spends almost the entire book challenging a, a group called the Judaizers. These were professing Christians who knew nothing of the freedom in Christ and who subscribed still to the law to still earn their salvation. It's like, I'm going to keep my Judaism, but I'm going to also grab Jesus over here too and just add him to it somehow. It literally doesn't work that way. Not because Christ opposes the law, right? But because Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it all. And so you can't have Christ and also be a strict observer for the salvation of your soul to the law. And so Paul is saying, like in uh, five, uh, Galatians 5, verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And some might have even made baptism, another law, another thing you have to do, like circumcision. Praise God, there's no circumcision as a law to be seen as the people of God, but, but how much, though less painful, uh, how much more restricting or how much restricting still would baptism or even communion be if it were a Law. So we know that if baptism doesn't save us, what then does it do? And I, w- I would say it does two important things for us. There's a, a personal and a public significance here. Baptism personally and symbolically, it unites us with Jesus. And here's why we clap and we cry and we celebrate after they come out of the water, because it unites us with the church, with one another. And we're united with Christ into his death and his burial and his resurrection, like we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. That when we walk in the newness of life, Paul says this, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So what does that mean? That means that to be in the arms of, again, a spiritual leader, a pastor, an elder, that to lean back and to go limp, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes our our death, our willing death of our flesh and our old life. To be allowed to go under the water fully represents a cleansing and the burial of Jesus into the ground as it, as it were to be buried. And then being brought out by the strength of someone else, it symbolizes being raised. That we offer nothing to this new life besides being saved by grace through faith. So it's a very personal, intimate, symbolically powerful, emotionally powerful moment that happens in the life of a believer. And then baptism is very public. It testifies to our association with and allegiance to Jesus, doesn't it? Don't you feel that? If you've been baptized, isn't that something you're thinking is, I want to tell the world. I, I want him to know and her to know and them to know. 
It tests the confession of a Christian because there's a price to pay, isn't it? For these new believers heeding that command very soon, they would risk their life being saved. And, hey, I haven't been baptized yet, but we were just told to go to Jerusalem. Ah, I'm going to have to get baptized there. Oh, no. Like, we, we take a really convenient, nice walk. It's hot in the summer. We get over it. And then we enter a beautiful backyard for the most part. Lately, we've done our baptism across the parking lot here. Uh, a friendly neighbor has built a fence into their, or a gate in their fence, and we, it's a beautifully landscaped, and, and it's lots of pictures and clapping. And, and that would not have been what they would have thought about if, having not been baptized yet, they would have chosen to be baptized in Jerusalem. It's like, didn't I see you coming out of the water yesterday? Are you a Roman official? Yeah. Did I see you coming out of the water? Yeah, I'm a, are, you, are you a Christian? Okay, you know, it's one of those, okay, come with me kind of thing. I have a, I have a baptism, baptism present for you, you know. We're going to kill you because it cost you your, your life. It could literally end in martyrdom. For some of us, maybe it costs us socially. Maybe there's an approval of man, a family member, that we have to consider whenever we are obedient to Jesus in baptism. Maybe there's a personal pride that dies, isn't there? Isn't this so symbolic of what has already taken place spiritually that we would let go of this life and pick up our cross in, in submission to Jesus Christ? Baptism is a very powerful experience. And Matthew 10, 32 says, in terms of associating with Jesus, it says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Doesn't baptism do that? Following this bold confession, we help them look more like Christ. This is the nurture. This is the end. We see this in verse 20. It says, teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. That's the, the, the next thing you do to make a disciple. The fishing axiom applies here. See if you can finish it. Whatever you catch, you clean. If you catch it, you clean it. It's your fish. You clean it. 1 Thessalonians 5 makes it very clear that God is the one who cleans and who does the sanctifying work. But we hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word um, for make disciples is actually one word. It's this idea of you're a disciple maker. Matthetusate means to make disciples, to manufacture disciples. To reproduce little Christ, I think of a, a massive manufacturing facility. And they go in, newly baptized, still dripping wet, and they come out teaching the Bible. Like, like what is going on in that massive industrial uh, building that, that the church is to do, that we as believers are to do? John MacArthur calls them believing learners, learning believers. Uh, you hear in Titus where it says, older women mentor and disciple younger women. Uh, and I love this from Paul to Timothy in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. It says, In uh, what you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust then to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many generations of believing learners, learning believers is that? It's three. And it perpetuates the cycle, doesn't it? So I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to teach you not just to teach you like an awareness and our knowledge, but I'm going to teach you to the point where you are then able to teach someone else. And if I've done that well and instilled that mindset in them, then when does it stop? It multiplies. It's not supposed to stop. 
This is a shameless plug for the Know What You Believe class, by the way, or at least this mentality. But we do have a class starting in a few weeks called Know What You Believe, Essential Doctrines of the Christian Faith According to Scripture. And here's the deal. Many of you have, a, have an awareness of, you have a knowledge of what the Bible says about certain things, important truths in Scripture. But if you had to teach someone that thing, you would not know to that degree how to do so. And so if you've settled with a knowledge or an awareness, that class would be a tool. So there's a commitment to this that is much larger. This class might be a resource that would give you an understanding of these truths that we see in Scripture to the point where you could then pass it on. Who are you discipling? Who are you being discipled by? If we believe the Bible is God's word to us this morning, disciple-making will dominate our lives. This is why we have air in our lungs and blood in our veins as we are continuing what Christ began. He's empowering us to do so, but we are, we are uh, ambassadors for God entrusted with the gospel. Living scent sounded fancy before this morning, didn't it? You know, we printed on the sign back there and we talk about it. Here's the deal. We, we know the weight of this. We, we've taught the weight of this. This is a reminder for us. Living scent is not living. It's living scent. The beauty of it is, is the T. Um, the T is our, our trust. We see this in verse 18 and 20. And this is the might of Christ. And I believe our, our fire sermon, ready, aim, fire, actually going and doing the thing. Dave will address this more directly next week. But the T represents trust. In verse 18 and 20, the ultimate pressure of this happening is relieved for us. There's still the pressure to go and do and make and be, right? But the pressure ultimately is absolutely taken off of us. It says, And Jesus came saying to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says in verse 20, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, the culmination of of the age. We are able to trust confidently in the authority of the, of the one who sent us. We are able to also trust confidently in the ability of the one who sent us. I know Dave will hit next week where uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. I, I intentionally left that part out earlier. I just said you'll be witnesses to the whole world, but that's an incomplete reading again on purpose. We are trusting in the empower meant the empowering work of God's Spirit. Luke 24, 49 says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you read Acts and you see the shift in Peter? Do you see the shift in Peter when you read the book of Acts? If you haven't, read the book of Acts and watch Peter at the end of the Gospels and watch Peter be the, the main preacher of the, of, the, of the church. This is one of my first Greek Golden nuggets that I found. I'll share this with you. Whenever you read, Behold, I am with you always. Always is three words. It's pasis, tas, hemeras, which literally means, I love this, all the days. So you can translate it always. That makes sense. But what I like better, because it's literally in the Greek, is I'll be with you all the days. Every day. Sunday. Monday. Always is this very like ultimate sense. He'll never leave me. Every day is like, even on Monday, he will be with me. 
even on Wednesday, like hump day is great, but you've still got like half the week to go, or, or man, this is a tough season of my life. Every day is hard, and you're going, every day, every day I'm with you, even till the culmination of the age. Let me sum this up briefly like this. As Christians, we are new creations for good works and loving works, as we see in Ephesians 2. We know the gospel message that saves, Ephesians 2, 8. We've been given power by the Spirit upon salvation, 2 Timothy 1. We're witnesses with a personal testimony, um, and we see that in baptism. And we are those who actively make fellow disciples of Jesus. That is what it looks like to live sent, trusting in His power, ultimately His empowering work by His Spirit for us to accomplish any of that. I think of how overwhelming it might have been to them on that hillside. Imagine that. If that's overwhelming to us today with airplanes and, like I said, internet and the ability literally to go anywhere in the world for a couple grand, think about what it might have meant to them. Think about for us if this is overwhelming with years, thousands of years of Bible commentary and explanation, fantastic preaching along the way, fantastic explanation along the way, a legacy in part to build on in terms of boldly living our Christian faith, that these guys, they would be the legacy beginning, the early church fathers, those first martyrs. If it's overwhelming to us, think about how overwhelming it might have been to them, and then let's take great, great hope in the power of Jesus to finish, if not through us, to finish what he started. That to live sin is to serve with the method of Christ's love to engage, with the message of Jesus to to nurture by making Christians and to trust in the might of Jesus and not in our own.